because of what you have done. Lord, without regard to what we deserve, which is in fact hell and judgment, you nevertheless, in your grace alone, saw fit to glorify yourself by redeeming a people to the praise of your great name. This has been a great privilege for us, and what a joy and an honor to see our sins washed away by the blood of Christ who has shed, who shed his atoning blood on our behalf to ransom and redeem a church without spot or blemish justified in the work of Christ. Be transformed each day as we behold your word and the means of grace into the image of our hero and sovereign and savior, Jesus Christ. But you have added to this blessing upon blessing, Lord, in providing for our needs. We, Lord, are privileged not only to receive the assurance of our sins paid for, but also, Lord, the great call to go now into the world and to share the love of Christ with others, and to obey you, Lord, and to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And as you add what we need unto us, Lord, we count it such a great blessing to be able to share the love of Jesus with those whom you appoint us to meet with our own children and encouraging the fellow saints as we gather together in this place with another testimony of a day, a week of your faithfulness unto us, your beloved bride. We pray as your word is proclaimed today that it, would strength, that it would strengthen and equip us for this task and that it would draw the lost to repentance and faith. I pray, Lord, that you would be magnified and glorified and that your throne would be established on the praises of your people and that you would go, Lord, forth from this place inhabiting the hearts of those who attend to shine forth as salt and light to a lost generation. To the praise of Jesus Christ and the growth of his government in this earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. <clears throat> this morning, with joy in our hearts and thankfulness as well, we welcome the opportunity as the people of God to gather together to extol our Lord and Savior and to consider His Holy Word. Would you turn with me as you're able to Psalm 119? This, the second Sunday of the month, is our Psalm a Month series. And we have been considering each stanza for some time now of Psalm 119. This brings us to verses 145 through 140 or 152, the 19th stanza, under the Hebrew title Kof, Q-O-P-H, which is also the 19th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. A quick refresher for you. Each stanza in this great acrostic psalm, in its original writing in the Hebrew, begins with the same letter, or each verse in each stanza begins with the same letter. Each stanza has eight verses. Thus, each stanza, if you knew Hebrew and could read it in the original tongue, would begin with the letter, each verse, 145, for instance, would begin with the letter Kof. We've remarked upon the singular uh, beauty and symmetry of this song and how it was ordered, and also its singular theme, the Word of God and its sufficiency. We continue to see these things as we behold the Word of God today in our text. The trial of malice is the presenting trial in our passage today, and a secondary title might be wholehearted worship. Regardless of the trials that we face, including those of persecutors, who with evil purpose would seek to do harm against the people of God, we have nevertheless a sufficient means to reinforce us for these challenges. And that means, of course, would be the Word of God. The Word of God is referred to by multiple synonyms throughout Psalm 119. 
And we have at least seven of them in our text today. The aim of this morning's message is to present a call to worship in spite of trials, to call us to worship the Lord wholeheartedly in spite of the difficulties that we might face. With that introduction and your heart in reverence to the Word of God, would you stand as you're able for the reading of the same? Listen in your hearing the infallible Word of the Lord as we consider Psalm 119, 145-152. Here is the Word of God. Kof, with my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help, I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Each verse in the original Hebrew, as we've mentioned, beginning with the letter Kof, serves to emphasize the sufficiency of God's word as the compelling interest of our souls. If we are in the right frame of mind as believers, trusting in him in spite of our trials in the 19th stanza of this great acrostic hymn, Psalm 119. The theme of this verse, or these verses, rests upon the vow of the author to uphold the summary commandment. In other words, the author would be quite familiar with Deuteronomy 6.5, which summarizes our duty and worship before the Lord with these words. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This instruction becomes the vow of the author when he cries out in verse 145, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. It should be our commitment as well. The psalmist reminds us through his own testimony that trials, even like that of malice-driven persecution, are used for good, our good, and God's glory as they move us toward wholehearted worship. Remarked on the patterns in Psalm 119, and one of them is, with the possible exception of the first stanza, every stanza, every group of eight verses after that has within it a presenting trial. There is this commitment to worship, There's this acknowledgement of the sufficiency of the Word of God, but there's also an honest recognition of a difficulty the author faces. For instance, in this section, 150, they draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. It's hard when we're in the thick of things and in the midst of a trial to understand its God-ordained purpose. But when we look to the Word, we find that one of the reasons God sends difficulties our way is to move us towards wholehearted worship. This is the implicit theme of this psalm here. Trials like this and troubles that God sends our way have a unique way of focusing our attention on things that matter. Have you ever noticed this at a funeral? Perhaps the loss of a loved one, beloved not only by their family, but by their extended friend network, compels hundreds to gather for a funeral. And the tragedy from our point of view of this death provides opportunity to focus on things that matter. And what is emphasized in a God-glorifying funeral is the mercy of God to that individual saving them if they knew him 
Uh, also, it is the testimony of God through them being a blessing to others. And also, there's an appeal often. We don't know the number of our days, but God knows. And the only way to be assured hope in the afterlife is to cling to Christ as our Lord and Savior. These are the dominant themes of the funeral. They hold our attention. But notice it's the occasion of death that compels and arrests our attention to focus on the priorities of life. The difficulties of what we go through have this effect at times. The difficulties of suffering, we are less, under times like these, we are less likely to entertain the delusion of self-sufficiency. If it is quite obvious that we are suffering under conditions outside of our control, then it is sometimes easier for us to acknowledge the one who is in control, ultimately only is in control, and that is the Lord our God. Our trials are thus redeemed as they arrest more of our heart to cry out to God. Our passage marks today the 150th reference to the Word of God. He extol, or our author extols the covenant revelation of God through words like in our passage, statutes, testimonies, words, promise, law, and commandments of Yahweh. And it is the difficulties that God has sent His way that have caused these things to be the focus of his attention and the priority of his soul to be directed to and his whole heart to cry out for hope in the only place it truly can be found, the revelation of the Lord. May we be moved by our own presenting trials, if you will, and the exhortation of this passage, Psalm 119, toward wholehearted devotion to the Lord, our God who saves his people from their sin and in due time, also saves them from their sufferings. I'd like to focus a bit on this theme of wholehearted worship this morning. And there are perhaps, if you organize this group of eight verses by groups of two, there are perhaps four main points of what wholehearted worship entails that we could draw from this passage. Let me list them quickly for you, and then we'll dig in with more detail. Number one, wholehearted worship entails submissive obedience. Surrender and obey. Secondly, exclusive reliance. The Lord alone is my ultimate and only hope. Thirdly, covenantal atonement. That is the washing away of sins or the guarantee of God's favor based upon his promises. And finally, a personal or the personal and powerful God. Wholehearted worship entails these four for the author. And we see them emphasized in these groups of two. Let's consider the first, Psalm 119, 145 to 146, emphasizing here submissive obedience. The psalmist says, with my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. Notice that vow statement, I will keep your statutes. Verse 146, I call to you, save me. For what reason, we might ask, he answers the second portion of the verse, that I may observe your testimonies. For the psalmist, wholehearted worship entails submissive obedience, statute keeping, testimony observing, recognizing that these things are indeed the purpose or the goal of salvation in the first place. Let's consider statute keeping in the context of greater scripture. Sometimes we ask ourselves, well, what are statutes exactly? And although these are all stand-ins for the word of God, if we look at them in the greater context of scripture, sometimes we can pick up a little more nuance so let's pick up a bit of that from Exodus 12 today. What are the statutes of the Lord according to the testimony of Scripture? Verse 14, This day shall be for you, Moses commands uh, to the people, or, or declares to the people, 
giving them the word of the Lord at the time of the Passover. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Verse 24, furthermore, this is regarding the Passover, he says, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. Verse 20, uh, 17, 24, and 14 in Exodus 12 all use this word statute to describe this feast. And this feast, of course, was a celebration of the deliverance of the Lord, where the angel of death, recognizing the atoning blood of the substitute lamb on the door of the children of God, passed over and granted them mercy at this time of coming judgment. And, and honoring and remembering this moment and the significance of that substitute shed blood became a statute. You could say perhaps a memorial stone of true worship. A statute, according to Exodus 12, is a memorial stone of true worship. It is something that God has ordained to be a fixed point in our consciousness and in our schedule to recognize His sovereign hand and His saving mercy. In the Old Testament, there were more statutes than this. They included things like the Passover, Sabbath, the feasts, etc. Memorial stones of true worship. Do we have any of these? Last week, we celebrated communion, which is the Passover fulfilled. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me at a Passover meal. And by his own work, on, coming work on Calvary, and by his own legislative authority, he commanded that from now on, that those elements would recognize that the Lamb has come. And thus, as a statute forever, we, in a sense, continue to, uh, to uphold or to participate or obey the commandment to participate in this feast, remembering as a memorial stone of true worship what Christ has done. Thus, when we participate in communion for the purpose and what it was, what it was for which it was intended, we are following the statutes of the Lord, keeping his statutes. There are other memorial stones of true worship. The, assemble, the assembly of the saints gathered here today, this morning in worship, is another statute, if you will. It is an instruction of the Lord not to forsake the assembly together of ourselves together, but instead to acknowledge him and these moments and opportunities in worship. And likewise, baptism. Upcoming next month, we're tentatively planning a baptism service because gloriously, we have young people being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord who are talking to their parents about their faith and their desire to be baptized. This, again, is a statute that is given to us, and when we uphold it, we are acknowledging a memorial stone, if you will, of true worship. So this is what wholehearted worship looks like in part. It is statute-keeping. It's recognizing these things that God has graciously given us and using them as a point of reference and recognizing the means that God uh, has established through them. Also, the sta statutes of the Lord, without time to turn there, in Exodus 18, 16, and 20 are referenced with respect to qualifications to serve in leadership. That is, those who are to be judges and to rule according to righteousness are to do so according to the statutes of the Lord. In this context, we find that statutes are not just memorial stones of true worship, but they're also, if you will, the textbook of jurisprudence. They are the reference of righteousness. The statutes of the Lord are that fixed point, that forever truth that establishes what is right and what is wrong. And this, this statute keeping thus takes on a, a further application 
We refer to the textbook of God's righteousness recorded in his holy word as our reference point to discern what is right and what is wrong and, how ought we, uh, and, and what we ought to stand for and what we ought to reject and the standard by which repentance or the, stand, the standard to repair to for repentance. We look at a wicked culture who has replaced the statutes of scripture with their own ideas and we call for repentance. We say, you are a sinner and have fallen short of the glory of God. His statutes say that you shall love the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. The statutes of the Lord in the Ten Commandments tell us that we are to have no other gods before Him, to not take His name in vain, to honor father and mother. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet, commit adultery, or, and, and so on and so forth. And these, the statutes of the Lord, when we uphold them and refer to them as the textbook of righteousness, we are practicing wholehearted worship. The Spirit grants us the ability to do these things when He changes our hearts. And the psalmist recognizes this in the Coast stanza as well. He says, With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. 146. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. This is the order of priority in the Christian life, referred to all the way back in Psalm 119. The Lord saves us by grace for a purpose, to observe his testimonies. Why are we saved? We are saved unto law-keeping, if you will. The purpose of salvation is to transform us and to change us, to give us new desires that we may walk in a way that is now glorifying to him. Paul echoes this sentiment in Ephesians chapter 2. This is a very famous passage, of course, but it's good to remind ourselves of the full-scale calling of our salvation, lest we forget and not walk in wholehearted worship. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, we read, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see there, we are not saved by our works, we are saved by grace alone. This is a gift and a work of God. Otherwise, we could boast about it. But we are saved for something. We are saved for good works. We are saved unto law-keeping. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to obey Him now that He has miraculously changed us. So this is the order of salvation. It is the fruit uh, based upon the root. The root, of course, salvation by grace through faith, and then the fruit, law-keeping, if you will. Jesus relates the idea of law-keeping as the mission and vision of the church in, uh, to salt and light in Matthew chapter 5. He says that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And there, the picture of saltiness and luminescence, if you will, is a vision or analogy of when the church honors the Lord, keeps his statutes and his testimonies, what that looks like, and how the effect that it has on the world. So this is what submissive obedience, wholehearted worship, statute keeping, and testimony observing looks like. In Psalm 78, 56 through 58, we see by contrast further admonition on testimonies. Illustrated by the alternative in this passage, and as opposed to the treachery, perversion, and deceit expressed by high places and idols, Rather, the testimonies of the Lord, we could perhaps summarize this way. They are the ways of the Lord proclaiming His majesty. 
the ways of the Lord proclaiming his majesty. These are the testimonies of the Lord, and these are his statutes. And when we walk in them and we, we observe them, we are walking in submissive obedience, which is what, in part, wholehearted worship entails. Let's consider the next two verses, 147 and 148. Wholehearted worship not only entails submissive obedience, but also exclusive reliance, trusting in God alone. 147, the psalmist says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. He says, furthermore, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. I don't know if you caught it, but in our worship text today, out of Psalm 113, there is parallel poetic language. The psalmist says in this other passage, in verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. What does wholehearted worship look like? It's a dawn to dusk commitment. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the glory of the Lord is worthy of our attention. This poetic language is echoed in our text when the psalmist says, Before dawn I cry for help, and before the watches of the night, from dawn to dusk, my whole day. Poetic imagery indicating the bookends for the day, the domain of all our conscious existence, you could say, is uh, owed to the Lord. It is all of the waking hours and all of our attention, all of our mental processing power. The Lord is jealous of all of this. And the psalmist commits to make the Lord a fixed point of his attention from dawn to dusk, to lift his eyes to the Lord and let his day be bookended in honoring him and giving glory. Of course, a practical application would be to open your day in perhaps Bible reading or prayer and to close it as well. These are just practical ways for us to remember that the Lord is worthy of our attention all day long and that we are exclusively reliant on Him from dawn to dusk. We should not endorse a sort of bumper sticker Christianity that seeks to put a label on the way we prefer to live and give some sort of tacit affirmation or saved by association false assurance. But instead, we should seek to bow before the Lord with all our being with all our heart and soul and strength. As we've mentioned before, the commandment from Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That is to say, you should love him with your whole heart from dawn to dusk. You should love him the whole day long. Beautiful language and a good reminder. So two things under exclusive reliance, hope and meditations, as the psalmist emphasizes as application points. I rise before dawn and cry for help, I hope, in your words. Turn with me briefly, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. This chapter is dedicated to those who, by example, place their hope in the Lord. It's called the Hall of Faith and records the testimony of those who were saints all the way back to the early days of the covenant and through, up through the New Testament. And their numbers are being added to, even today, by those who place their hope in the Lord. Verse 13 describes the condition of their souls this way. These all died in faith. Verse 13, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God as he has prepared for them a city. Do you see how the hope of the saints is compelled by the promises of God? What is the object of your hope? We say, this is a common phrase, perhaps you've heard it before, that faith is justified by its object. Some people say, oh, I certainly admire the commitment or the sincerity of this religious idea or of that people group or this culture or otherwise. But what that, but what that sensibility fails to take into account, that faith is not judged by sincerity, first and foremost, faith is rather judged by its object. What is sound and true faith? It depends what you have faith in. Hope is likewise justified by its object. What do you hope in? What a great question. This question serves as an idolatry test on what do I rely on for hope? Where do I place and invest my psychological frame of mind? What is the crutch for my soul? Where do I find peace? The scriptures talk about peace that passes understanding, but they also say that there's an exclusive source of this peace. It comes from the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace because He is Lord of Peace. He is the object of our hope. And all true hope, all non-delusional expectations for the future, therefore, rest on Him. The promises and Word of God, the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ, that is the object of true hope. Furthermore, meditation. The psalmist says, I not only rest my hope in the Lord, but I meditate on you as well. I rise before dawn, I cry for help, I hope in your words. My eyes are awake, verse 148, before the watches of the night, I, that I may meditate on your promise. Like hope, meditation is often a concept that is misused, misapplied, and twisted. There are two uh, things we could perhaps acknowledge to focus, to, to understand what biblical meditation is. First, what it's not. Meditation is not an end in and of itself. Just simply quieting your mind or opening your soul to whatever the quote-unquote universe might fill it with. It's kind of a mystical discipline, promising spiritual enlightenment, something taught by Eastern religions and endorsed by New Age teaching. This is not what biblical meditation is. Meditation is not an end unto itself. Nor is biblical meditation attention paid to anything outside of what the scriptures would endorse. Meditation is not merely quieting the mind and it's not merely focusing on something that doesn't glorify God. Instead, true biblical meditation is when our affections, that which we desire, and our attention, that which we focus on, are captivated by the glories of the gospel and all its implications. Meditation, likewise, is justified by its object. That is, we are to think about the Lord, the promises of God. If you're reading Psalm 119, 145 through 152, and you see statutes, testimonies, words, promises, law, commandments, and then testimonies again has seven synonyms there, you know, what you could do is do a little study. Think, well, where are statutes listed in the scripture? Do a little thesaurus check on the app on your phone. Write down a few verses where statutes the Lord are referred to. Do this again with testimonies, words, 
promises. And then think about it through the course of the day. That is a brief application and example of what biblical meditation looks like. Setting your heart in the processes of your soul to focus upon that which has exclusive and true and ultimate and eternal merit. Wholehearted worship entails exclusive reliance on the Lord. Our hope is in Him. Our meditations ought to be on Him from dawn to dusk. Number three, wholehearted worship entails covenantal atonement or the covering of sins according to the promises of God. This I state by implication, verse 149 and 150, listen, hear my voice according to your steadfast love. Pausing there, steadfast love. We often remind ourselves that this Hebrew word has said is the gospel of the Old Testament. Implied in that phrase, in the original language, is the covenant-keeping, blood-atoned for love or faithfulness or assurance or promises of the Almighty God. It was the said love of the Lord that guaranteed that angel would pass over when the atoning blood was on the doorposts of the homes. And this was celebrated by the statute of the Passover, and we celebrate its fulfillment in communion even today. This is the steadfast love of the Lord. O Lord God, the psalmist continues 149, according to your justice, give me light. Give me life, excuse me. According to your justice, give me life. Is, how is this possible? I would like to refer you back to uh, Gene's message from two weeks ago, or several Sundays ago, from Romans chapter 3, which gives the answer. How can God be just and give us, who deserve hell, life? You see, justice is giving, by definition, someone what they deserve. So we deserve the wrath of God. So therefore, how could God give us life, answer our prayers, give us hope, intervene if we do not deserve it? How can he be just and justify us? This is answered in Romans 3. For all have sinned, Paul says, 23, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or, let me add, wrath-absorbing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, listen, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that's the gospel that answers the question of Psalm 119. How can God give us or the psalmist life and still be just? Well, if someone else takes the punishment that we deserve. And this is the message of Jesus Christ. This is why atonement, according to the covenant, is the only way that Psalm 119-149 can be answered, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. We don't even deserve an audience with the Father. 149, they draw, or uh, hear my voice, the psalmist cries, according to your steadfast love. The Lord will not hear those who are not in right standing with him. No, his justice requires that they be outside of his presence entirely, that they be an object of his wrath, not of his gracious and steadfast loving ear. But something has changed. A sacrifice has been provided in our place. The cries of our high priest, Jesus, have been heard. The atoning blood that he has shed has been acknowledged by the Father. And therefore, the Lord, through these means, hears our voice. We have audience with him. 
The steadfast love of the Lord is a reality for us because of the truth that we see revealed and fulfilled in redemptive history. Think of the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 39 through 43. A convicted felon, if you will, hanging for what he deserves on a cross next to the only ultimately innocent man that ever lived who deserved to be glorified and exalted before the right hand of the majesty on high and has been the object of the cruel death of criminals and sinners who hang him on that tree. And Jesus, in his hour of anguish, lends his ear to the thief next to him. How is it that God himself, Jesus, in the flesh, listens to the plea and the cry of the man next to him? It's because the very blood that he is shedding has earned that thief's audience with him. And he says on the basis of what he is doing in that very act, today you will be with me in paradise. This is divine audience. This is justice affirming eternal life, gloriously illustrated in these moments in Scripture, which give the basis for the psalmist's hope when he says, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. He is facing difficulties, 150, they draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. So the lawless intentions of those who would seek to harm him, belittle him, marginalize or mock him for his faith, they are a present challenge. However, he knows that if the Lord is near to him, it doesn't matter if others draw near to hurt him. Verse 150 through 151, they draw near to me who persecute me with evil purpose, but notice in contrast and by hopeful juxtaposition 151, but you are near, O Lord. Where do we find that reassurance of hope, even in the midst of difficulty, as bad as malice-driven persecution, when the Lord draws near to us, and in Christ he has drawn near? This is another example of spirit-filled prayer, if you will, of holy, praying in the Holy Spirit. Jude has admonished us, we referenced this last week, that we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith and we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. This is a spirit-filled prayer right here. Another example we considered last week was from Hezekiah 37. Where although the enemies of God's people, to the tune of 185,000 from Sennacherib, surround so as to conquer Judea, nevertheless, Hezekiah prays in the Holy Spirit and cries out to the Lord. He spreads that letter of godless, rebellious propaganda before the Lord at the house of the Lord. He takes on sackcloth, an attitude of humility and repentance. He tears his royal robes, not relying on his dignity and position and his office, but instead saying, I am exclusively reliant on you. And in the house of the Lord, the place where the atoning blood of those provisional sacrifices was shed, he cries out that the Lord, for his own glory and namesake, would save the people. And the next day they went out to count bodies and they got tired because it was a big job, I'm sure. And after 185,000 dead Assyrians were marked in the logs of victory that day, the people realized that the Lord is their hope. And if they draw near to him, it doesn't matter if the enemy draws near to them as well. Because in the end, our Lord Jesus Christ has triumphed over even the last enemy death, therefore, he will save us. Finally, this morning, wholehearted worship entails not just submissive obedience, exclusive reliance, and covenantal atonement, but finally, the personal and powerful God. You can say personal and preeminent 
over, above, majestic, glorious, holy, and yet he has stooped low, condescended, the term is to speak to us. Verse 151, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. There are two aspects of the Lord's character that are affirmed here. First, his condescension, which is a theological term that refers to the nearness of the Lord, or accommodating himself that we might know him. The Lord stoops low, but you are near, O Lord. The Lord has manifested his nearness to his servant through his word. Constantly he refers to the statutes, testimonies, the words and the promises of the Lord. This would be the Lord making himself known through his word to his servant. The nearness of the Lord is proven in the record of his holy scriptures, which we hold in our hand this morning. God is sovereign, God is powerful, yet he is near and he is close and intimate and personal. Last night I kind of hit the kids during family worship with a trick question. The question was this, is God personal? Is he intimate? Can he be known? Or is he holy and above and transcendent and sovereign? And of course the right answer is he's both. But you see there the way the question was framed, a false binary. There, it's not an either or. I give this to you because the Bible constantly affirms that God is both near and sovereign. Now, I submit that most heresies, misunderstandings, and false religions create, are, are based upon this false binary. Since God is near and personal and loves me so much, then I must be you know, truly sovereign. He defers to me because I'm the center of his attention. This is to emphasize the nearness of God at the expense of his holiness and sovereignty. Or someone might say, God is sovereign, he's over, he's all, there is this unreachable, I affirm some kind of transcendent power, but because he is so great and abstractly, and he's merely an abstract reality, certainly I don't know who he is or could tell you for sure by my own experience how to know him. This again is false. God is both. He is over, he's eminent, and he is personal, he is imminent. He has condescended to us in Jesus Christ. This is the glorious act, the miracle of all cosmic history, when the sovereign who created the world by the voice of his spoken word became a man and took on flesh to not only pay the penalty for our sin, but to speak with human language. If you and I were there, we would have seen him, we could have touched him, we could have heard him. The tactile experience of interacting with the second person of the Trinity would have been our testimony for those who were there. How is this possible? Because God drew near through Jesus Christ to take on flesh, become a man, and bear the cost of our sin and to proclaim the truth. This is the nearness of the Lord, his condescension, his imminence, his personal connection, the intimacy that he shares with us. But we are not to forget that he is holy, awesome, and true at the same time. At the same time, long have I known from your testimonies that you had founded them forever. That is, from eternity, your word is true. You are true. All your commandments are true. Psalm 119 stands as a beacon of rebuke in a day, today, today's world of radical subjectivity, evident in things, you know, sensibilities like this is your truth or this is my truth. 
That expression indicates a radical subjectivity. It's to say there is no real ultimate standard, objective standard of truth. Rather, my experience is ultimate. It is the foundation, and it's the basis upon which I make my decisions and find my hope, focus my meditations, etc. Well, this is false. The psalmist has recognized that the testimonies of the Lord are true. He has founded them forever, and therefore he submits and obeys them and surrenders his own perception to the truth of what God has universally and ultimately declared, the truth of the Lord. Today's attitude most commonly is the cynical ignorance, if you will, of Pilate who said, what is truth? John 18, 38. And of course, the answer was he was staring him in the face. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus had revealed if Pilate had bowed in reverent submission before the revelation of truth incarnate, he could have been saved from the sin he was about to commit, condemning by the pressure of the mob, an innocent man, God himself in flesh to death on the cruel cross of Calvary. Truth, what is it? We mentioned last time we were in Psalm 119, it's that unit of account, if you will, that universal objective standard which governs and measures all human relationships, all relationships, in fact, even between man and God. It is the statutes, testimonies, word, promises, and commandments of the Lord. Finally, the psalmist recognizes in this the personal and preeminent God revealed himself through his, revealing himself through his word to his people in his condescension, his glory nevertheless and his truth nevertheless absolute, that this is by self-attestation, that is, the Lord affirms himself and the word affirms itself as true. Notice this detail, 152. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. How do I know that the word of God is true? I know it from the Lord's testimonies. An important acknowledgement here. God is eternally self-sufficient. Even his name, I am, means as much. That is, he is his own witness and testimony. In the book of Hebrews, it goes on to say that the Lord had nothing higher than himself to swear. So therefore, he swore by himself. We know the word of God is true because it attests to its own truth. Its authorship, its authority, and its divine decree are self-attesting, if you will. That's the technical language. Let me put it further by saying, by definition, the highest authority must affirm itself. Otherwise, if we say God is true because of this, or because of that other testimony, then what are we doing? We're exalting an independent or an authority above the Lord by which to judge him true. The Lord is jealous of his sovereignty, power, glory, and authority. And we know that the word of God is true on the basis of its self-affirmation and self-attestation. Now, the world will tell you this is circular reasoning, and in a sense, they aren't wrong. But we hasten to add that the Lord does witness the veracity and truth of himself through other means. But we acknowledge that this, again, is by condescension. The Word of God is amazing and unique, exclusive and singular. You will never find a document like it. And you can dedicate your lifetime as a scholar to recognize such things, and even as of yet, unbelieving scholars have. Recently, I heard Jordan Peterson say that there is no other document as hyperlinked as the Word of God. He is a public philosopher scholar that has recognized a self-attesting truth about the Scripture. It is a singular, amazing, awesome document. And there is evidence of God's glory not only in His Word, but also in His creation. But we do not judge God as true, ultimately speaking, by our own reasoning, 
or by a so-called objective standard like science or the laws of logic or the laws of physics. No, instead, we understand that God has affirmed to us through all these gracious means that he is true and he has spoken this world into existence by the word of his almighty power and in his steadfast love and condescension has spoken to us through his son and through his word. Man's reasoning, science, laws of logic, and uh, physics, or any empirical observations of any kind notwithstanding. Our God is powerful. Our God is personal. Our God has supplied for us the atoning covenant blood by which we can be in audience with him. When we recognize this, we know that we're exclusively reliant on him. and Therefore, it should move us to more submissive obedience still. This is what wholehearted worship entails. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for graciously giving us the knowledge of yourself in the pages of Holy Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would renew our zeal and love for you. Perhaps there are those listening who have been in the faith for some time. The familiarity of the flesh can sometimes breed contempt. We repent of, great, of not recognizing, Lord, letting the clouds of the cares of life dis, uh, distract our vision and obscure the truth that within the pages of your word is the gold and precious gemstones of inestimable worth that exalt your holiness and your glory and your salvation. Return us to the joy of our salvation. Lord, I pray that you would stir within us, whether we're going through trial or if we feel we're on a mountaintop this morning, wholehearted worship that we might submit to you and obey, that we would rely on you exclusively as our hope and the focus of our meditation, that you would remind us of the precious, expensive cost of our salvation, the atoning blood of Jesus. And let us marvel that you are personal and have saved us individually, and you are powerful, and you are the sovereign of the universe. Lord, if there are any lost in the hearing of this message, I pray that the announcement of the glory of God and his justice, the wrath that is due sin, would cause them to quake in terror unless and until they turn to Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed and necessarily so, that a just God might offer them eternal life. Lord, we pray that this message of hope in Christ would be in our hearts, on our lips, and testified through our deeds. We thank you for those among us, even among the young people who have asked a reason for the hope within some of the parents and are beginning to understand and testify to their own faith and seeking to be baptized. We pray that you would add more to our numbers, young or old, as they turn to Christ and recognize him as the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.